Not every individual sound that I am taught is going to be detrimental to my ability to be understood, right? So as instructors, if we do provide explicit instruction in the classroom, we want to choose carefully uh, what sounds or what aspects of pronunciation we're focusing on. So when learners potentially run into those moments in interaction that communication breaks down, that knowledge exists. You're listening to Speaking of Language, a podcast recorded at the Language Resource Center at Cornell University. Each week, we explore a topic related to language pedagogy and second language acquisition. This week on Speaking of Language. Dustin Crowther discusses the ins and outs of intelligibility when speaking a second language and how it relates to fluency. Welcome to a new episode of Speaking of Language. I'm Angelica Kramer, the director of the Language Resource Center at Cornell University. And I'm Sam Lupowitz, the LRC's media manager. We are excited to have Dustin Crowther with us today. Dr. Crowther is an assistant professor of second language studies at the University of Hawaii at Manoa. He gave a talk as part of our monthly LRC speaker series on research investigating intelligibility and comprehensibility in second language pronunciation learning. We will extend our conversation about the implications for the classroom today. Welcome to Speaking of Language, Dustin. Uh, thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here. Before we dive into today's topic, will you please share with our listeners a little bit about your background in languages and your research? Uh, I'll start by saying that, oddly enough, my interest in second language pronunciation isn't actually tied to my learning of second languages as much as issues I've had with pronunciation in my first language. Huh. Uh, so, so over the years, I've, uh, I mean, I'm from Canada, so I've studied French. Uh, I lived in Japan for three years. I studied Japan. Am I satisfied with my learning for either language? Probably not as much as I could be, but I have experience with those two languages. Uh, I spent a little bit of time learning Turkish as part of a research project uh, using Duolingo before. But when it comes to my interest in pronunciation, it's actually more personal in the sense that uh, as a, a child, I had a lot of issues with my own uh, pronunciation. So I would go to speech therapy when I was quite young. Uh, I've struggled through a lot of my life to articulate within my own speaking. Uh, I have a background in theater, and one of the biggest difficulties I had was always, you know, speaking in such a way that the audience could actually understand what I was saying. Mm. And I remember being taught to live in my vowels. Mm. So a lot of the emotion in speech is in the vowels, and that's mm -hmm. where you can sort of elongate and slow your speech down. So when uh, I came back from three years in, I remember when I was teaching in Japan, a student came up to me and asked, uh, uh, so just to take a step back, I was there on the JET program, which we typically go over there to teach English, but we're also more cultural ambassadors. Mm -hmm. So many of us go there with limited teaching experience or training. And I remember a student asking me, how do I say this properly and not knowing how to basically give them proper instruction, which was sort of my, my jump off point to pursue more language teacher training. And then I just found as, as I continued to delve into it, I made the link between my own struggles in, you know, my own English pronunciation as my first language, and then what I could potentially do to help second language learners of English as well. Hmm. So that's sort of, in essence, I, it took me a while to sort of realize that connection, but yeah. I think my motivation on uh, pronunciation in second language is very much based on my difficulties of pronunciation in my first. Mm -hmm. 
you gave a fascinating talk uh, called Addressing Speech Comprehensibility in the Second Language Classroom, What 25 Years of Research Might Tell Us About Classroom Pedagogy. So in a nutshell, what does the research tell us? Uh, well, the research tells us that this construct of comprehensibility, uh, and in this case, the, the working definition is uh, the perceived degree of effort it takes to understand uh, an utterance or understand a speaker, uh, this idea of comprehensibility is multifaceted. Uh, there's really not one characteristic of speech that informs how easy or difficult a speaker is. And in fact, uh, it could be phonological, it could be lexical, it could be grammatical, uh, it could be tied into the background of the speaker, it could be tied into the speaking tasks that they are performing. So what a lot of the research has been investigating, continues to investigate, is really trying to understand uh, this construct holistically. And right now, what's interesting uh, is, and I didn't get into this in the talk just because there's, there's too much to cover, mm -hmm. but we're now really viewing it as sort of the dynamic nature of these perceptions of comprehensibility and how listeners' perception is malleable in the sense that the more non-native contact I have, the more comprehensible I might perceive non-native speech to be. Uh, my perception of how comprehensible a speaker is can even change within the same interaction if I'm willing to uh, allow for that in my own interactions. So in a nutshell, we're really looking at a highly important but multifaceted construct where uh, there are a range of ways in which we may address it in the classroom, but we're likely not able to address every component uh, simply in one or two lessons where we may be focusing you know, on the more phonological here, but then trying to promote more fluency-based pedagogy over here. Mm -hmm. So what are some of the findings of your own research in this area? Yeah, so in the presentation today, I talked about three studies that were part of a project conducted during my uh, MA studies uh, under the supervision of Pavel Trofimovich, who has published quite a bit in the area. Uh, in those studies, we were looking at the effect of a speaker's first language background, as well as the potential effect of task. And uh, just briefly, we found that uh, comprehensibility or how comprehensible a speaker is perceived by uh, listeners can very much depend on the first language of the speaker. We found that for Chinese speakers of English, how comprehensible their speech was was tied into their segmental accuracy or uh, how accurately they were able to produce individual sounds. Uh, for L1 Hindi speakers of English in the same study, how comprehensible they were was based on their lexical and grammatical choices. What's important to note in this case is there was no, based on high stakes proficiency assessment of these students, there was no group differences. So hmm. despite being equally proficient in the language, their comprehensibility differed based on their first language background. Uh, and then the follow-up study focused on task. And what we found is that as task, as a task became more complex, uh, we saw a greater and greater role of lexical and grammatical usage in language informing how comprehensible a speech is. So we can interpret this as being more complex tasks typically uh, require speakers to use more complex language, which uh, there's different directions of research we can consider that uh, we don't have time to delve into. 
but understanding that given that the language is likely less familiar to them, suddenly lexical and grammatical considerations along with phonological are going to potentially influence how comprehensible their speech is. Mm-hmm. It's fascinating. Can you talk to us a bit about the role that fluency plays in L2 pronunciation? Right. Uh, and this is a, an area that I'm really interested in right now. Uh, I'm actually teaching a graduate seminar here on fluency development. So I'm even uh, still developing my own knowledge in the area. Uh, fluency has been, I think we have more of these intuitive understanding what fluency is, but it can also be considered uh, on a far more technical level. So intuitively, we often think of fluency uh, potentially as how proficient a speaker is in the language or how quickly or how slowly the speaker may uh, speak in that language. What we've been looking at this semester has been drawing upon uh, the work of Norman Segalowitz, who's divided fluency into cognitive fluency, which is really talking about uh, the speech processing that occurs in the mind before we deliver an utterance. So conceptualizing the message giving the message shape in terms of vocabulary, grammar, uh, and phonological properties, and then being able to actually articulate that message. Uh, this can lead into what Segalowitz talks about, utterance fluency, and this is generally what we see measured in comprehensibility research. So uh, how many syllables does a speaker produce during the utterance? Uh, how many syllables are they able to articulate on average between two pauses. How frequently do they pause during an utterance? And we found that many of these uh, temporal measures of fluency that are a reflection of the cognitive processes are highly associated with how, uh, with, with how comprehensible a speaker is perceived to be. And so in this case, we can see phonological influences in terms of pronunciation of individual segments, word stress, sentence stress, informing comprehensibility, but also different measures of uh, their temporal fluency or measures of the rate in which they are speaking. So did you find any, or are you aware of any differences between um, languages here? You mentioned in your own research that you looked at speakers of different L1s. Has there been um, any difference that you are aware of in terms of uh, fluency based on the speaker's L1? It's, it's an interesting question, and, and this is what we're looking at in my class currently. A lot of the literature I'm familiar with when it comes to uh, fluency has often focused on English, at least the literature mm -hmm. that I've been, mm -hmm. I've been reading. Uh, so I recently collected uh, a mini speech corpus of foreign language productions here at University of Hawaii since we have such a, a wide range of foreign languages. So I have uh, speakers interested with, with COVID restrictions. It's been a fun study because they were completing mm. their recordings remotely using uh, Extempore app. Mm -hmm. But we have speakers from Japanese and Korean backgrounds. And this is the question that we're actually looking into this semester. So a team of my students is an, are analyzing the, uh, 11, Jap the 11 Japanese learners uh, and the 11 Korean learners to see whether there's differences across 200, 300, 400 level learners. Mm -hmm. uh, and they're basically their uh, temporal measures of fluency. Okay. So ask me in a year or so when there you've we analyzed go. those samples and I can probably give you a more clear uh, 
discussion. We do know in, in fluency research that there are certain aspects of fluency that carry over from the first language. Mm -hmm. uh, and so for some of the measures, this is the case, but for other measures, not so much. One of the key differences typically, though, uh, is where pauses occur. And typically mm -hmm. non-native users of a language, especially those who may be uh, less proficient, tend to they seem to pause more in the middle of a clause as opposed to the end of a clause. Whereas mm -hmm. native speakers, we tend to, you know, pause at the end of a clause. Okay. That's yeah. one of the questions we're going to investigate more. You also talked a little bit about the role of tasks and task mm -hmm. complexity. Can you synthesize for our listeners what that role is? Yeah, so, and I think it's also sort of linked some of the other discussions we've been having. Uh, we found that, so in uh, the 2015 study in Modern Language Journal, uh, 2018 study in Studies in Second Language Acquisition, and a recent study in Journal of uh, Second Language Pronunciation, we found that speakers generally are more comprehensible on less complex tasks, right? So as the task mm -hmm. becomes more complex, their comprehensibility goes down. So we do have to recognize that comprehensibility is not a static construct. If I'm yep. comprehensible now, doesn't necessarily mean I'm going to be comprehensible performing a different speech task. Uh, so as instructors, as we begin to place uh, more linguistic constraints on our learners, uh, they're going to have to draw upon a wider range of resources or be more creative in order to respond to prompts. And this can sometimes, especially when they're trying to use language they are uh, either unfamiliar with or less familiar with, this is going to potentially lead to language that is less comprehensible. Uh, what's interesting, and this is a study that I am currently uh, writing up and trying to submit later this week, is uh, coming out of my dissertation data, speakers had completed uh, four different tasks. Uh, so, and they were on a continuum from least complex to most complex. Mm -hmm. On the least complex task, there were no differences between the speakers in how comprehensible they were. Hmm. But as task complexity increased, there was one group that started to differentiate itself from the other speakers. So uh, we start seeing more and more differences between speakers in terms of comprehensibility as task complexity increases. So if I am comprehensible on a complex task, I am most likely going to be comprehensible on less complex tasks. Uh, so I think it's really interesting when we look at the use of tasks in the classroom that we shouldn't necessarily shy away from tasks that may be difficult for learners because these more difficult tasks are going to require them to use uh, features of the language that will allow them to be more comprehensible in the long run that they may not be required to use on less complex tasks. And this can lead to more naturalistic development through meaning-based uh, activities as well, uh, as opposed to uh, basically just drilling specific aspects of pronunciation, working through vocabulary lists, etc. Great. Well, you mentioned some implications for teaching. Uh, what mm -hmm. are the practices language teachers can implement in their classrooms? Yeah, so uh, I want to be careful, especially the last comment, that I'm not advocating against, you know, teaching pronunciation. Uh, and this is one of the discussion points that we had during the, uh, the presentation as well. It's important that learners are given opportunities to engage in, in, in meaning-based usage of the language. 
we have seen pronunciation can be uh, improved through controlled practice, but we don't know how extensive improvement in controlled practice is when, it, when it's carried over into spontaneous speech. Uh, this is a question that Saito 2012 discussed a little bit and mentioned that even if we see improvement in controlled production, we may not simultaneously see this in spontaneous speech production as well. And so one of the points that I was raising in the workshop is the reason that we provide them with meaningful opportunities to use the language uh, is so they can identify where some of the issues in intelligibility and comprehensibility yeah. exist. If I can identify when and where communication is breaking down, it gives me an opportunity to sort of fill that gap. And this is tied very strongly with the interaction approach towards mm. language acquisition uh, and coming out of my PhD background and those I worked with like, like Susan Gass and that, this is very much what they have advocated in much of their work. But I think it holds true. And one of the arguments that we have put forth, uh, if you go back to uh, some of the publications from 2015, is that where explicit instruction can be useful is in meaningful interaction when communication breaks down and as a learner I'm trying to figure out why can't the person I'm speaking to understand me mm -hmm. I may re reflect back and say oh yeah I know this sound can be problematic so I'm going to take a moment and try and articulate more clearly mm -hmm. right the importance here is the emphasis now is on global issues not necessarily local issues not every individual sound that I am taught is going to be detrimental to my ability to be understood, right? So as instructors, if we do provide explicit instruction in the classroom, we want to choose carefully uh, what sounds or what aspects of pronunciation we're focusing on. So when learners potentially run into those moments in interaction that communication breaks down, that knowledge exists and ideally through additional practice within meaningful interaction, they may be able to automatize that process to the point that they won't have to stop and think about it and work on their articulation, but hopefully will be eventually to provide language that may not be native-like, but approximates the sounds or the speech rhythms or the stress to the point that allows them to be more intelligible. Well, and I think that's just like with any other aspect of SLA in general, right? Mm -hmm you just mentioned the practice in meaningful contexts and you really laid that out in in your talk nicely with you know the the classroom provides the production practice which then increases your fluency which gives you more fluid output and mm -hmm. then ultimately leads to greater comprehensibility and i think practice makes better right i mean yeah. nothing is ever perfect but practice definitely makes better in all areas yeah. of second language acquisition yeah and i think what you just said there about leo uh practice makes better doesn't necessarily make it perfect but when it comes to speaking uh one of the the first things i mentioned in the talk is you know we can be intelligible comprehensible speakers without possessing a perfect native like accent and yep. i think there's i mean i i'm pretty sure the field in a lot of cases we've hit that point and scholarship is very much advocating for this at this point but you know let's start with uh developing comprehensible, intelligible speakers. And once they hit that threshold of intelligibility, if they still want to pursue something akin to native like speech, all right, we can see what steps we can take. But aiming for intelligibility and comprehensibility first, yeah. native likeness second, I think is, is what we really want to be, where we really want to be uh, putting our emphasis. 
Well, and actually, with your background in global English is too. I mean, what is what what even is nativeness in English, right? I mean, yeah. we can let's let's just throw all of that out. <laughs> mm. Yeah, yeah. I, I've heard people say like CNN English and or BBC yeah. English. Like, mm-hmm. I, I've been watching CNN with like you know everything going on in like the last six months. I'm like, <laughs> these guys all have different like like what is CNN English yeah. at this uh, point? Uh, like everyone's coming from these different backgrounds. Yeah, I. I think one point I'll, I'll make on that is I do want to be careful that we have to be very careful how we work with learners on this point, though, is because sure. I've seen uh, a critique I may give of some global English's literature, and I don't think this is the intent behind the literature, but it's sometimes presented as we want to raise learners' awareness and tell them that you don't need to sound like a native speaker. Mm-hmm. But there is evidence as to why learners, even if theoretically we know it's not necessarily a reasonable goal. There are reasons learners uh, may be striving for native-like speech. Uh, and Murray Monroe had a piece back in 2003 in the context of Canada showing you know, discrimination against those possessing an accent. I think one thing that we want to do, and this is sort of what uh, Global English's research has been trying to do, is how do we introduce these constructs to learners where it's like, here are some of the reasons why possessing a native-like accent isn't necessary. Right. As opposed to just saying, we're not going for native likeness, we're going for intelligibility. That's just the mm-hmm. way it is. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. So it's how do we address it with learners? Uh, and what we're also seeing now and uh, uh, Nick Suterolu, uh out of Georgetown uh, and some of his work with Stephanie Lindemann has been looking at to what extent are we able to, especially here in the U.S., work with some of our U.S. undergraduates who are coming out of high school with limited contact with mm-hmm. international users of English. And so how do we go about this without strictly uh, putting the onus on the speaker? And sure. now with Global Englishes, it's, it's, you know, it's not just non-native, non-native interactions. Mm-hmm. And Global Englishes acknowledges this, but we often focus on the non-native user. Sure. How yeah. do we raise awareness with the native mm-hmm. users as well? So if you had to give one final piece of advice for instructors, say, at the beginning level um, of language study about comprehensibility, you know, if the teacher is concerned about comprehensibility Mm -hmm. of their students' pronunciation, fluency, what would that one piece of advice be? What can they do in the classroom to help their students? I would say focus on global as opposed to local errors. So if you are looking, if you feel the need to provide feedback and students often want feedback, I think for a lot of teachers, our instinct is to provide feedback. Focus on those errors that are likely to uh, lead to loss of intelligibility, loss of comprehensibility or communicative breakdowns. Uh, and that would, I think one piece of advice, that is what I would mention here. Wonderful. Thank you. All right. Well, before we sign off, we'd like to ask you to share your favorite word in a language you speak, love, or are learning. So what is Mm -hmm. that favorite word? (laughs) All right. So I'll give you the response that you may cut out of the, uh, the podcast. (laughs) I remember going to Japan and being exposed to the word ginky and completely mishearing it. And I never quite got over it. But I'm like, oh, what does kinky mean? It, it sounds like kinky. Is this like the Japanese kinky at this point? Uh, but no, I, I, I actually, so to start that again, uh, uh, I've, I've always found, I mean, the word ginky interesting because I think coming from English when I first heard the word, even though it's a clearly 
different word than kinky, I had these uh, immediate thoughts of what the word ginky might mean. Uh, but really, it just it, it's like happy, high energy, uh, sort of ready to go, sort of the interpretation that I picked up when my students would use it. Uh, I also just like sumimasen in Japanese because it's like this all-inclusive, something goes wrong, just say sumimasen, and uh, all is potentially forgiven. Bamenu-san, sumimasen. Oh, we're good. Right, make a mistake, sumimasen. I'm pretty sure I've overgeneralized the use of it, but when I first got to Japan uh, and spent three years there, but when I first got there, those two words were the ones that have just always stuck with me because I was sumimasening everywhere for like the first year when I was in trouble. <laughs> Wonderful. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for speaking of language with us today, Dustin. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Next week, Jennifer Boker smith and Bianca Lewis will join us from Cornell's Learning Strategies Center. We will talk about our recent collaboration in expanding language tutoring for our undergraduates. Until then... Auf Wiederhören! The Language Resource Center is located on the ground floor of Stimson Hall on Cornell's main campus in Ithaca, New York. Check us out on the web at lrc.cornell.edu or look for Cornell LRC on Facebook and Twitter. Speaking of Language is produced by Angelica Kramer and Sam Lupowitz. Recorded by Sam Lupowitz. Original music by Sam Lupowitz, Dan Gable, and Joe Gibson. Thanks also to the College of Arts and Sciences at Cornell University. As a reminder, the ideas and opinions expressed on this podcast do not reflect those of the College of Arts and Sciences or any other official entity of Cornell University. We thank our listeners, and do stay tuned for our next episode.